title of my sermon this morning uh, is that reconciliation is the goal. Reconciliation is the goal. In the last few months, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. I think I I went back and looked. We started around uh, the end of April, shortly after Easter, working our way through the book of Acts. And this morning, uh, we're going to take a break from that. I'm going to go off script, so to speak, and uh, we will not be in our study the book of Acts today. Instead, I'm going to do something I don't ordinarily do. Um, I'm going to preach a little more topically this morning, talking about the topic of reconciliation. I want to work through several different texts of Scripture um, that I think will help our church body at this, at this present time to work through some things uh, that we are facing. And so what you'll see behind me on the screen, if y'all pull that up for me, is uh, a list of Scriptures, five Scriptures. I know that looks like perhaps a lot. Uh, but we're going to kind of skip across the top of each one of those. And my hope is that, uh, that I can weave those together in such a way that, that we see the urgent and consistent teaching of uh, the New Testament on the subject of reconciliation. So feel free to jot those down. You can turn to them uh, if you would like. I will announce each text. You can turn to them as we go. Uh, but feel free to jot them down. The scripture will be behind me on the screen. And to keep me from having to flip all over the place, uh, I have my Bible here, but I will be reading from the the screen back there. We have those loaded already. And so that's our goal this morning. My hope is that we will see the importance of reconciliation, not only with one another, but with our Father in heaven. Because the Bible clearly puts that forward as a consistent teaching and a consistent theme. So over the last 11 months, I believe uh, we as a church body have seen some significant spiritual opposition from our enemy. You know, the scripture promises that we will encounter opposition from the enemy. And a lot of times we are tempted to think um, wrongly that the, the enemy is the one beside us or down the road from us or down the road from us or across the hallway in the office or whatever the case may be. But Ephesians 6 reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and and blood, but it's against spiritual forces of evil that exist in the heavenly realms in ways that are uh, that we can't see. And so there's a cosmic battle raging uh, all around us all the time, according to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, but that said, the Scripture also teaches in John chapter four that the Holy Spirit, the one who lives within the heart of every believer, is greater than the one who is in the world. And so, if we are in Christ, the Scripture says that we share in this same Spirit. We share in the same spirit. So no matter what differences you may have with another person, if they are in Christ and you are in Christ, they do not receive a different spirit, a different Holy Spirit than you do. We all partake of the same spirit. We are all indwelt by the same spirit when we come to faith in Christ. And so if we all share in this one common bond that that ties us together, then the scripture is clear that we ought to pursue peace and we ought to pursue reconciliation as best we are able. So as you may know, over the last uh, number of months, there's been quite a few disagreements, a few differences of opinion over certain matters. Um, Really in 2017, I want to speak to that this morning. Disagreement is not a sin. Amen? We hope so, right? We hope we can have disagreement, differences of opinion. Having a difference of opinion, holding a different perspective, is not a sin. Amen? But if we allow our disagreements to go unchecked, 
And they begin to spoil inwardly what God is wanting to do in us. If a root of bitterness, as Hebrews says, begins, or, or Romans, begins to grow up within our hearts, if that root of bitterness takes hold and begins to spread, it's like a spiritual cancer. And a simple disagreement, a simple difference of opinion, if we don't pursue peace and pursue reconciliation, becomes, for us, sin. And the Bible is clear in that area. And so we're called to pursue reconciliation and to work to protect the unity of our fellowship. And so we want to pursue that as best we can. This morning I want to touch on five scriptures, as I said, just briefly. Uh, I picture in my mind a rock uh, being skipped across a creek here. Uh, we're going to skip across the top of these. Feel free to study them on your own. Uh, but we're going to look at God's desire for and His expectation of reconciliation in the church. The first text I want to look at this morning is from Matthew chapter 18. Verses 15 through 17. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. I'm actually going to turn there because I can't see. If you're curious as to what I'm saying, you guys can look at the screen behind you there. Uh, we've got a little alignment issue up there, so I'm, I am going to turn with these. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 reads like this. If your brother sins, some translations leave out against you, it's not actually in our earliest and best manuscripts. It's talking about just sin in general, not personal grievances. If your brother sins or sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If you mark in your Bible, if you have a highlighter or a pencil, underline that, that phrase, gained your brother. That's the goal of what Jesus is saying here. You've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even, listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This text is all about gaining back your brother. In fact, one of the, the translations I have in my office, the CSB, the Christian Standard um, it actually subtitles the section, Gaining Back Your Brother, because that's what the goal of this text is. I believe, though, what's happened in the last 100 to 200 years is this text has been one of the most avoided passages in the New Testament because we simply don't understand the goal of it and the thrust of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 18. And too often we see it used or misused, we should say, to punish someone instead of gain back a brother who is caught in sin. What we see really is four steps that, that, that we are to pursue in going after reconciling someone, going after them individually, going after them with one or two others, all this taking place in private, coming before the church and calling the church to lovingly come around these individuals. And then finally, if they will not listen, to treat them as if they do not belong to the covenant family of faith. This is what we call church discipline. The problem with this is in the last 100 to 200 years, what's happened is church discipline has been regarded as a so-called witch hunt. I put that in air quotes because the Bible doesn't call it that. And if we look at it, actually, this entire process is Jesus' idea and not ours. Jesus doesn't even call it church discipline, actually. The whole thing is in the context of going after someone who is falling into willful sin and straying from Christ. I was listening as we were singing to that hymn that talks about Christ came after us when we strayed. And he, he sought us when we were a stranger. What? Wandering from the fold of God. God's great heart and concern for people. 
is that we would not wander away from Christ, wander away from his people, wander away from the teaching of the word. And if that begins to happen, Jesus has set in motion a process for us to go after our brother or our sister and to win them back in private. And so those steps include a private conversation, if they will not listen, another private conversation with one or two others where we lovingly call them to repentance. If that plea is not heard, the next step is to take the matter to the church's attention. Why? 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 So that the church can lovingly reconcile with this individual. Come around them and say, listen, we're not going the right direction here. We love you. We care about you. Come back. Get back on the right track. That is the responsibility of a New Testament church. That's the responsibility of us one to another. I think a hundred times the New Testament says one another, one another, one another, one another. Why? Why doesn't it say pastor do this or deacon do that or Sunday school, Sunday school teacher do this or committee member do that? Because none of those things are as important as the church body being the body. Going after one another. That's the purpose of this text. And so the church wants to surround with love and prayer and encouragement to turn people from their sinful patterns. However, Jesus does say, Jesus clearly says, if that one will not listen to the church after those three steps, after trying to win them back to fellowship with Christ in the church, then we must assume if the individual is not willing to repent of sin, we must assume if there's no repentance, how can there be faith? We cannot have faith if we don't first repent. So if we show unwillingness to repent, then what Jesus says, Jesus says it, the words are in red in my Bible, is we need to assume the individual is like a Gentile or a tax collector. Those were not a part of the congregation in that day. Here's the dangerous thing about this text. Too many times churches rush to exclude instead of rush to pursue. That's the dangerous thing about this text. Instead of going after the brother or sister in love, the goal is in verse 15. What does Jesus say? You have gained your brother. In a word, reconciliation. If we lovingly handle disputes in verse 15, then listen to this. We will never find ourselves in verse 16 or verse 17. Think about that. If there is an issue between you and another person, or you... Let's go back to the original Greek. It doesn't even say against you. Let's just say that an individual is willingly, intentionally wandering away into sin. Let's just say they're fallen, as someone said recently, fallen out of the, the, uh, the bar drunk every single Friday night. And they're unwilling to repent. And they're saying, I'm not going to turn away from this. I don't care about this. That's an issue where we ought to go to those individuals or that person in Christ's love. But if they are struggling, they're saying, I'm struggling with this church, help me. And they're reaching out for repentance and reconciliation. That's not a matter for church discipline. Because there's a heart that is softened and is trying to battle with the flesh. They need the church to come around them. And so if we think about this, if we as a church will live in verse 15, live in a spirit of winning back our brother, reconciling with those that there are differences between. If we will live there, we will never see verse 16 or 17. We should live in that spirit. Reconciliation is always the goal. I think it would be more helpful for us to look at Matthew 18. Instead of seeing it as harsh or difficult, or that's just, that's not biblical. Churches don't do that, amen, right? No, what we should do is see this as God's guardrails. 
Because any one of us at any time in so many different ways can go off the edge of the cliff into sin, can we not? Were it not for the grace of God, what did John Newton say? There go I. What I want to ask you this morning is, do you believe that? Search your heart. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the seeds of original sin are within your heart? Until Christ comes in and changes that. And uproots those and replaces those with righteousness. But guess what Paul still says in Romans 7? That flesh is going to jump on our back and make war with the Spirit. Over and over and over. And we will never be free from that war until we are called to our heavenly dwelling. This is God's guardrails to keep us from going over the cliff. We ought to see that as grace. Do you know what you exist for as a church family? To lovingly pursue one another for the purpose of reconciliation. That's God's grace. That's God's purpose. That's God's process. Second, let's look at John 13, 34 through 35. Here we see one mark that Jesus gives us of a Christ follower. John 13, 34 through 35. reads this way. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Listen to this. Here's your qualifier. Here's your standard. Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. By this, Jesus says, all people, this includes unbelievers, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. So what is the distinguishing mark that Jesus is looking at here? This is not the only one, but what is the distinguishing mark of a believer here in John chapter 13? That we love the same way Jesus loved us. That's a pretty high mark, isn't it? When I was in high school, I took up pole vaulting for one year in track. And they gave me the wrong pole. I was 125 pounds. And they gave me the 155-pound pole. What that means is I could not get the pole to bend. Okay? And the bend in the pole is what propels you over the bar. And so I just ran down the, the runway and jammed that thing in. And it just popped off to the side and I fell on the mat. And I think I went over the bar one time at 8 feet 1 inch. There was a freshman. I was a senior. There was a freshman that came into the conference that was pole vaulting 14 feet as a freshman. I mean, these are collegiate marks, and he's doing this as a 14- and 15-year-old. And I looked at him, and I thought, I'll never be able to get over that bar. I'll never succeed as a pole vaulter. When we look at what Jesus has said, really, we're looking at a high standard. That in our flesh, on our own, we will never be able to get over that bar. We will never love anyone with the love that Jesus has, had, has for us if we don't understand the love that he has for us. As we love each other, or as we understand Christ's love for us, we're able to love one another. In verse 35, he explains that in loving one another, we show the world we belong to him. Jesus said in 1 John 4, chapter 4, chapter 4 verse 20, We cannot say we love God if we hate our brother. God's greatest concern is his own glory. His own glory. That's God's highest mark is his glory. So how can we pursue his glory personally? And individually and corporately as a church body, if we are harboring hate and not willing to love our brother, we show the world the reconciling love of God in Christ when we love one another. Love aims at reconciliation. Third, 
Romans 12, verse 18. Turn back a couple of books to the book of Romans, chapter 12. And find verse 18. In Romans 12, 18, Paul tells us this. Our responsibility is to pursue peace. Pursue peace, not force peace. We can't force peace, but it says our responsibility is to pursue peace. And in Romans 12, Paul gives one of the most extensive Christian ethics that we find in the entire New Testament. In verse 18, Paul says, Every believer ought to willingly pursue peace and reconciliation with one another. Listen to the verse. If possible... If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul never says, as best you're able, force reconciliation. We're not jamming the square peg into the round hole here. It's our job to pursue peace as much as we are able. Who alone changes hearts? Let me ask you that, church. God. I can't change a heart. You can't change a heart. Have you, ever, have you ever had someone in your family and you watch them stray away from Christ and you watch them make decisions and you think to yourself, what, what are they doing? They are ruining their relationship. They're ruining their job. They're ruining their family. They're ruining all these things. And you so want to, to just do open heart surgery and reach in there and change their heart. We are not capable of that on our own. That's a God-sized task. But it is our responsibility to show forth the love of God and the grace of God beginning with those in the body of Christ. You say, well, well what about the times when we can't reconcile differences? Not, not issues of, of sin. Let's just say differences. Scripture never teaches that that is a sin. That's not something we pursue church discipline with. Paul and Barnabas in the Gospel of Acts, they couldn't agree on John Mark. One of them said, John Mark's flaky. He's not committed. Let's leave him behind. The other said, give him a chance. Come on. Don't you want a second chance? They couldn't agree. And so what did Paul and Barnabas decide to do? Part ways. That's in the Holy Scripture. That's never listed that Paul and Barnabas were sinning in parting ways. They just had a difference of opinion. And for the time, they had to go a separate way. If I recall correctly, though, at the end of one of the New Testament epistles, what does Paul say? Here's reconciliation. What does Paul say? I think he says, tell John Mark to come here. He is useful to me. That's grace. That's reconciliation. Seeing somebody at one point as, as unuseful, as not helpful, as not fit for being in ministry and saying, I have to part ways. But through the grace of God coming to a different place in the understanding of that person and saying, he is useful to me. I need him. I think John Piper is helpful here. He lists two things. He says, number one, I'm quoting this here. He says, we are only responsible for what others hold against us when owing to a real sin on our part. Second, we are responsible to pursue reconciliation. But listen to this. To live with the pain if it does not succeed. Have you ever had to live with that pain in a marriage when you couldn't reconcile those differences? Or live with that pain with a child who was wayward and just wandered off for 5 or 10 or 15 years and just said, I I'm sorry, I understand I'm breaking your heart, but I just can't. I'm not going to church with you. We have to learn to live with that pain. That's a difficult pain to live with. 
but we're not responsible to make it happen. Paul says in Romans 12, 18, so far as it depends on you. And think about what Jesus did. Did Jesus take every step he could to pursue reconciliation and peace even with his enemies? Yes. Did he ever sin? Did he ever have anything that he needed to bring to the table and say, here, I I made a mistake here? No, he didn't. And he had to live with and die for the sins that others were committing against him, but he pursued peace. The fourth scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. I call this one something more important than money. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 23 and 24. Jesus says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, if you're in worship and you're bringing your gift, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then, come and offer your gift. My study Bible has a note that says this. Disciples must attempt at the earliest opportunity to reconcile with a brother or sister who has something against them, even if doing so interrupts important business. I was studying Matthew chapter 5 this past week and learned a fascinating detail about this text. In Jesus' day, people traveled for miles to get to the temple. They would come from the region of Galilee to the region of Judea where Samaria was located. They would travel for miles and they would get there to the temple and they would offer their sacrifices and their gifts and their offerings there in the temple as an act of worship. And Jesus is saying to them, even if you've traveled miles to get here and you've prepared this sacrifice and prepared this gift and you think you're ready to lay it there on the altar, but you discover someone who is a brother or a sister in Christ has this against me. Listen to what he says. He says, abandon your gift. Leave it at the altar. Don't pick it up and take it with you. Stop what you're doing. Leave it at the altar. And he says, go back. And make things right. So in that context, he was teaching in Galilee. And he's saying, go back to the region you came from. Make things right with your brother or sister. Then go back to Galilee to complete your sacrifice. Showing the tremendous priority of unity and reconciliation. I think the application is clear. We're not ready to worship God. If we're not ready to reconcile with our brother. We're not ready to come into his house and bring him our gifts, whatever gift that may be. Fine. It doesn't say specifically the word may entail financial, but it can be financial or your spiritual gift or your gift of your time or your gift of your position serving in the church, whatever that may be. It says we're not ready to worship him until we reconcile with one another. Why? Because unity is of the utmost importance. It not only precedes our worship, it prepares us for biblical worship. So here's what I'm going to say. I can get up this morning and I can put on this shirt and put on this tie and put on this jacket and pants and shoes and socks and I can prepare myself and I can fix my hair and I can come into this place. But that doesn't mean inwardly I'm prepared to worship God. It doesn't mean I'm ready to be here. 
If I've not taken care of this matter here between me and someone else. And so the scripture says here that if someone has something against you, not that you've done it to them, but if something has someone against something someone has something against you, then you go to them and pursue that reconciliation that prepares you to come into the house of the Lord. I just want to ask a question for you to think about this morning. How much richer and deeper would your worship be individually? Or would our worship be corporately? If we came into this place having taken seriously Matthew chapter 5, 23 and 24. If we put aside other important business, whatever it may be, and say, I'm going to the Lord's house in three days, or one day, or six days, and I need to take care of something. If we set that aside and we are literal. See, here's the, here's the convenient thing. It's so easy on some things that are difficult to say, oh, I, I think what he meant was this. When in fact he meant what he said and he said what he meant. Amen. We want to prepare ourselves to come into this place. The fifth text I'll look at is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in your Bibles or make a note of it, you can read it shortly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll begin in verse 17. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? I heard three people. Aren't you glad? Your sinful flesh got nailed to the cross. Never for you to have to put it back on anymore. It's gone. It's done. It's over. You don't wake up and have another debt to pay that day. There's no scoreboard. You don't keep a tally on the wall. I passed Jesus' test. I failed it. If you are in Christ, it says you are a new creation. We can camp out there and just stay there. That is awesome news. That's not just great news for the lost person. That's great news for the lost person who stands under the judgment of God this morning. But listen, that's the gospel and the great news of, of believers. That if you've been forgiven of your sin, you are new. You look in the mirror and say, boy, I don't feel new. I feel old and rotten and I fail and I stumble and I need him. That, that's an okay attitude. Because we see the flesh every single day. I was preparing this morning. I had a rare quiet moment in the back of the house. I shut about four doors to get there. No exaggeration. Shut as many doors as I could. I'm in the, in, in the back corner of the house. And I'm praying. And the only thing I can think to pray is I'm aware of my own sin. And I've been pursuing these texts myself personally this week. And appropriating these things to my own mind and my own heart. The only thing I can think to say is, God, I need you. I can't stand up here on my own, in my flesh. I can't parent these kids that... God, you gave them to me. Remember what Adam said about Eve? I can't do this on my own. 
I don't know how to do this job. I don't know how to be a dad. I don't know how to be a husband. God, I need you. And Satan and the world wants to lure us away from that attitude. And I want to say to you this morning, I want to ask your forgiveness. For the times in which I have walked in my own spirit. For the times in which I have in conversation or up front here. Walked in my flesh or preached in my flesh. And I've put stumbling blocks in your way. I had that prepared to say at the end, but I feel the Lord impressing me to say it now. But praise God, I'm a new creation. And you're a new creation. We share in the same spirit. And if that is true of you and that is true of me, then what are we called to do to pursue this ministry that God has given us? What ministry is it? The ministry of reconciliation. What is reconciliation? To put back together something that was broke. What's broke? Not God. Us. Us. God has crushed the beef between us and Him by sending Jesus to die in our place, paying a sin debt we could never pay, and being raised victorious from the grave. That is our only hope. That's our only hope for reconciliation with Him and with one another. If we don't have that within us, if it's not there, reconciliation will not happen. If we've not been reconciled to the Father by laying aside our sin, we have no ministry of reconciliation. Paul is speaking to believers. We are commissioned to go to others and say, listen, I want you to have what I have. But when we walk in the flesh and we don't pursue that ourselves, of which we've all been guilty at times, when we don't pursue that, we don't show forth the fact that God's commissioned us to this ministry. We can never call someone else to pursue something that we are not living out ourselves. Paul says we plead with you, with others, to be reconciled. So I want to close with just a few thoughts this morning and then we'll sing our closing song. First of all, I want to say this. I want to say I'm sorry and ask for your forgiveness as a church for not addressing these matters before now from this pulpit. I want to ask your forgiveness for not coming before you with the word And saying, here's what God's word says. I want to ask your forgiveness for not addressing that sooner. Second of all, I want to say thank you for being willing to help me grow in many ways. As a a young man, as a young father of five, as a young husband, as a young pastor, and helping me to live as a Christian. So here's what I'm going to ask you, and here's what I'd like to ask you to give to one another. This is not just asking you to give this to me. I'm asking you to give this to one another. If I have offended you, and I'm sure that I have, there's a lot of you and one of me. My chances aren't good. If I have offended you, if I have put a stumbling block in your path, if I have done something that has inhibited your ability to follow Jesus or your ability to worship here, and it's, it's a sinful issue, not a, not a difference of opinion, not a, a disagreement, I want you to please come to me and give me the chance to seek reconciliation. I want to ask you to do that for one another. I'm not asking you to because I think it's a good idea. 
I read it in Oprah's book last week. I'm not reading Oprah's book. I'm telling you because the Bible says that we ought to grant that to one another. To forgive as the Lord has done what? Forgiven us. And I want to do the same for you. Following closely on that, the third thing I want to say. We need to be careful to distinguish between personal preferences, matters of opinion, things of that nature, from actual biblical sins. Differences of opinion do not mean someone has sinned against you. Okay? We need to wrap our minds and our hearts around that. If the action is outward, serious, and unrepentant. Outward. It's being done. It's being said. It's not something you're speculating on someone's heart. If it's outward, if it's grave or serious, damage-causing, and if it's unrepentant, someone is saying, I'm not going to change. I don't care what you bring to me. I'm not going to... I'm unwilling to change. Then we ought to go to each other in secret, as the Word says. Go to one another privately. Work these things out together with reconciliation in mind. But if our grievances are speculation or hearsay or based on our own personal preferences, then those are not biblical sins. We need to be clear and careful on that front. Number four. Lately, I've heard a lot of this circulating, and you may have as well. People are saved. People are saved. I'm not going to listen to that anymore. And I want to ask you as a church not to listen to that anymore. If someone says people are saved, then we need to say, have you asked those people to come talk to me? Or have you asked those people to go talk to the individual? To use me or deacons, Sunday school teachers, committee persons, counting people, choir, to use anyone in this church as a secret sounding board to go and say, I'm going to tell you my complaints and I want you as a second or third party to go to that individual. That's not in the Bible. If we want to be people of this book, with all of our mistakes, with all of our stumblings, with all of our failures, if we want to be people that take this book as literally and seriously as we can, if we want to pursue holiness, then please, please, church, let's put away this people are saying business. If someone comes to you and begins to gossip, let's call it what Paul called it, we need to ask them this question before they start, or we need to stop them and say, have you been to talk to that person first. This is an easy way for us to keep gossip on the treadmill. Number five. 1 John 4.19. Well, I don't need to look it up. It says, we love, why? Because he first loved us. What state were we in when he loved us? We didn't look like this. We were a mess. We were worse than a mess. Let's be biblical. Paul says you were dead. Necros. You were dead. Jesus came and he loved spiritual corpses for their good and for the Father's glory. That doesn't make sense. We love the memory of a person if they've passed on, but we don't love their corpse. It rots. It decays. It's just flesh. It goes back to the ground. But see, we have reconciliation with God because He first loved us when we were in the state we were in. And He came after us. 
He pursued reconciliation. And so then we ought to pursue reconciliation with each other.